Our reading today is from Luke chapter 6, beginning in the 12th verse. It can be found on page 10 of your bulletin. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. The word of the Lord. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. All right, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin at the beginning of the service, and you can, you can grab that now. And there's a place on there where you can jot down uh, these three things to listen for. First is TCU football. Uh, secondly, a plumbing apprentice. A plumbing apprentice. And then thirdly, I want you to, uh, to think about or listen for why the number 12 is important. Okay? So TCU football, plumbing apprentice, and why the number 12 is important. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we look to this passage together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is absolutely true, and we thank you that you've given it to us because you love us. And so we pray now that your spirit would be at work and that your spirit would ultimately enable us to see Jesus, to know his love for us, and even to, to follow him and to love him, even as we know the love he has for us. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, a, uh, a few years ago, we were in Kansas City. Uh, we were at Jeanette's mom's house. It was early January. It was on a Saturday. And it, uh, it was a day where NFL playoffs were on. So I was sitting at this kitchen table with two of Jeanette's uncles and... Um, uh, at one point, there was a, a block kick, and so uh, one of her uncles asked me, he goes, Brian, got any good stories of blocking any kicks in college? I'm like, uh, I, I kind of laugh and say, no, but, but I blocked a kick in middle school, you know, and uh, kind of laugh and move on. Uh, later, his wife comes into the room, this is Jeanette's aunt, uh, and, and she, she sits down at the table and she says that their daughter's boyfriend is a huge sports guy. And, uh, and she said, we were telling him about you, uh, but we Googled you and couldn't find much. And I, I look at her, like, pretty confused and say, like, yeah, there's a good reason you're not going to find much, you know? <laughs> and she says, well, he would love to hear some stories about when you played football at TCU. <laughs> and I, 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 <laughs> I go, wait, what? Like, what? No, I, my football career ended in high school. And, uh, and she says, you didn't play linebacker at TCU? Say no. And so literally for 20 years, they thought that I had played football at TCU. And in about 30 seconds, their opinion of me dive bombed in a huge way, totally plummeted. I saw the rest of the night, her uncles that are sitting there with me, they would go like, I'm really bummed you didn't play football at TCU. I was like, yeah, me too, you know? <laughs> And so here's the thing, 
If you were going to build a winning football program, a winning FBS team, this is not what a linebacker is going to look like, okay? And I mention that because uh, there's a sense in which that's probably what we would say about Jesus' choice of these 12 apostles as well. So if you, you heard the list of these guys and you knew of them, you'd say, Jesus, this is not probably the A team here that you really want it to be. Like, if you're trying to recruit this group of people to be a part of your mission in the world, this is not the place to do it. It's not a who's who of the first century world. One pastor says that these guys would have gotten the high school graduation award of least likely to succeed. So, a few examples of this. Uh, Matthew is a tax collector. We actually met him in, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 5. And tax collectors in that day were viewed as traitors. They worked for the Roman government, and what made it worse is that they actually collected taxes from their fellow Jews, and so they were hated and despised. So you got Matthew, but then you also have Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot was essentially like a Jewish nationalist who wanted to overthrow the Romans by force. So you got these two together in this group. And then uh, I think my favorite, though, are James and John. Uh, They're called the sons of Zebedee earlier in Luke 5. In Mark's list, uh, they're nicknamed the sons of thunder, (laughs) which is great, like thinking of their mother, whose sons are uh, nicknamed sons of thunder. (laughs) Uh, So the point is that this is not the A-team. And yet, these are the exact kind of people that the God of the Bible loves to use over and over again. And you see this throughout the Bible, that the Lord will choose some of the least likely people to be a part of his work in the world. And here's what I think is so encouraging about that. It means that God really can use you and me. And I think this is really important for us to to think about and to spend some time looking at specifically because we're about to move into this new building. We're going to have a, 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 be in a new neighborhood, probably some new opportunities for ministry And there can be this sense of wondering, like, are we really equipped to do this? And part of what's so encouraging about this passage is it says, the Lord knows exactly who he's calling, and he knows exactly how he's going to use us in that way. And so here's the question I want us to think about. How can we as a church be a part of Jesus' kingdom ministry in the world, even specifically in our new neighborhood? So um, four headings that I want to look at. First is this, the call to ministry, the call to ministry. So verse 12, uh, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So uh, I'm not going to read this list again, but we've already met some of these, uh, these apostles, these disciples. Uh, Jesus had called them in chapter five. He called them to follow him. He expands the group here. Two things that I want you to see about this call. Uh, The first is that this call comes by grace. And uh, if you notice, uh, Jesus' choice of these 12, just like the calling in chapter 5, it it pretty much comes out of nowhere. Uh, In other words, it's not like he saw this group of guys engaging with people and thought, you know what, these are the guys that I want on my ministry team. These are the guys that I want to pull in and have a part of this inner circle. That's not what happens. What happens is that there's this larger group of disciples He then calls these 12 out of them, and they are the ones that the Lord wanted. It says that Jesus was up all night laboring in prayer before the Father in order to choose these 12. And they become part of his people, not because they're uniquely qualified. They become a part of his people 
because of the Lord's grace, and part of the reason we know they're not uniquely qualified is because they continually stumble and struggle and mess things up. And if you're familiar with the, the, the gospel stories, that, that, then you see that over and over again. You see a group of guys who are pretty slow. They, they struggle to understand what Jesus is trying to do. They, they say and they do things that they shouldn't. And I think most soberingly, at the end of Jesus' life, he gets, he's arrested. At that moment, we, we always talk about Peter's denial. But what actually happens is that all of the disciples bail on him. They all scatter at the end. And I, I highlight that just to say that there is nothing that they had done, there was nothing that they would do that earned them a spot amongst the 12. It's Jesus calling them by his grace into his community who's going to be the one who then equips them to do this work. And, and here's why I think this is so, so encouraging to us. This is exactly what he does with us too. He hasn't called you to be a part of his work in this world or in this city in particular because that we as a church have shown ourselves to be so great, or because we've shown ourselves to be so capable of doing his work. He's chosen us and called us, just like he has all of his people in this city, because he desired us, because he chose us out of sheer grace. And, you know, on the one hand, uh, that's pretty humbling. But, but, but on the other hand, I, I think this is so encouraging, because it means that he really can use us. That he really can use us in all of our limits. He can use us in all of our weakness. He can use us in all the ways that, that, that we struggle and wish things were different. And, and, and so that's one thing to see. There's this call that comes by grace. There's something else, though, that's going on with this call. And it's that it points to Jesus' greater mission. And so uh, here's what I mean by this. Uh, when we hear that, that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray... And that he then calls these 12 apostles. We probably don't think much of this. If we were Luke's original audience, though, we would have perked up. Because we probably would have thought, okay, I've heard something like this before. This sounds really familiar. And so in Exodus 19, what we just read in our Old Testament lesson, after the Exodus, Moses goes up onto this mountain. And mountains throughout the Old Testament are places where people meet with God. He goes to this mountain. He meets with the Lord. He ultimately comes back down and, and, and then the, the 12 tribes of Israel are called. And so uh, what Luke does is that Jesus then calls these 12 apostles, and then they eventually are just called 12 for the rest of the gospel. They're just referred to as the 12. The point is this. Luke wants us to see that there is a, someone here who is greater than Moses, and that he now is calling and forming this new Israel, this new people of God, because he's ultimately going to lead his people in an even greater, an even greater exodus than what Moses did. And so you get hints of that in the beginning of this passage. That's the call that Jesus extends. Secondly, the companionship of ministry, the companionship. So there's a, there's a small but, but really significant phrase in verse 17. So Jesus calls the twelve, and he's about to begin what, what most refer to as the Sermon on the Plain. And that, that's, uh, it's, it's probably a version of uh, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk more about that next week. But Luke says that Jesus comes down to a level place. That's what's called the Sermon on the Plain. There's this small but really significant phrase here. In verse 17, he says, He came down with them. And that phrase, with them, ends up getting used eight more times in Luke's Gospel, all to describe this relationship between Jesus' disciples 
and Jesus. And Mark puts this even more starkly in his parallel passage. It says this, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And I think that this is so helpful, and I think that's even beautiful, if I could put it that way, that Jesus is saying that, that part of the reason that he is calling them to himself is that they would be with him. That they would be with him. So why would that detail be important, maybe even specifically when we think about ministry? So a few reasons. One is that the fundamental call of a disciple is to be with Jesus. And I know that that might sound a little bit odd, but Jesus calls you to himself most basically because he wants to be with you. Because he wants your company. Because he loves you and he desires to be with you. So much so that he calls you into a, a relationship with himself. So in, uh, in John's gospel, this, the, the, the night before uh, he's crucified, they're up in the upper room, he says this to his, uh, to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. And it might feel a little weird or maybe even a little uncomfortable for me to say this, which is why I need to say it. Jesus wants you to be his friend. He is calling you into friendship with him. And that, that, that's one of the details that I think, or one of the reasons this detail is really important when we think about ministry, that that is most fundamentally your call to him. Here's the second. Uh, it's actually by being with Jesus that we learn how to do ministry. And so this is very literally what happens with the 12. They are called uh, into fellowship with Jesus, and they are then going to live their entire lives with him. They were going to be with him all the time. They would watch him learn from him, see the ways that, that he interacts with people, see the way he loves people, see the way he preaches and proclaims this message. And so they were going to begin patterning their, patterning their entire lives after his. There's a, uh, an author who writes a lot about spiritual formation. His name is Dallas Willard. Uh, he uses the term apprentice rather than disciple. And I think that's a really helpful term because when you think about an apprentice, it's somebody who's modeling his whole life after a master. And I know that, that's not language we use uh, very much anymore, but it is used still in some trades. And so you, if you think about, uh, for example, in the state of Texas, to become a licensed plumber in Texas, you actually have to become a plumber's apprentice. And you have to do that for two years or about 4,000 hours in order for you to become a licensed plumber. And so in the midst of that, you're watching and you're learning the way that this plumber does all of his trade. That's something of what Jesus is calling them to. And I know you hear that and you probably think, yeah, it was a lot easier for them to do that because they are literally following him, right? They are literally living their entire lives with him. And so obviously we can't do that. What can we do, though, that might be comparable? What we can do is to immerse ourselves in the Gospels, to actually begin to see the way that Jesus lives his entire life such that we would begin patterning our lives after his. So that's the second reason I think this phrase is important. Here's the third. Being with Jesus is ultimately the source of our ministry. It's the source of our ministry. So um, no lasting ministry in any shape or form is going to happen apart from deep communion with Jesus. You can't give away what you yourself don't have. 
there was a, uh, there was a, a big, uh, a long study that was done by some professors at Covenant Seminary. This was about 20 years ago. And it was all about sustainability in pastoral ministry. And so they, they asked the question, uh, what are the areas that a pastor needs to attend to in order to make it for the long haul? And they, they came up with five areas, and all these apply to, to anyone doing any kind of ministry. Number one on that list was spiritual formation. It was being with Jesus, that that was an absolutely essential component of ministry and of longevity in ministry. So why, why uh, might this be really important for us, maybe even really practically as we're moving into the building? Um, I, I think part of the reason this is important is because a lot of us uh, in this room are doers. <laughs> and so uh, we are the kind of people who get stuff done, right? And, uh, and so uh, th- there's a sense in which, that, and there are a lot of things to do right now, by the way. So let me not deter you from doing things also, okay? Um, but there can be this temptation uh, to jump into ministry in a way and, and ca- do what Jesus calls us to, get busy doing it, um, and lose sight of what is even more foundational or what would precede that, which is being with Jesus. Being with Jesus precedes doing for Jesus. And so part of what we need to do is continue to return to that for, for all kinds of reasons, but one is that it really does uh, it does result in what is actually sustainable, long-term, healthy ministry. How can we do that? Uh, one suggestion, daily prayer project and the, and the uh, Book of Common Prayer prayer guides that we have out there. Uh, they're both in the foyer. I'd recommend those because it's a great way to, to begin patterning your life after Jesus, to spend intentional time with him in his word through prayer on a daily basis. Again, those are in the foyer. So uh, Jesus calls them to, to be with him, to calls them to himself in order to be with him. That's the companionship of ministry. He goes on to say more about this ministry. So thirdly, the, the character of ministry. The character of ministry. So what's it supposed to look like? Um, so Luke gives a, a, it's sort of a summary description of what Jesus did, what his ministry looked like. This is in verses 18 and 19. So there's a huge group of people that are made up of uh, some of his disciples And he says that some of them are Jews. They're from Judea and Jerusalem. They're also Gentiles present here. Those are the folks from from Tyre and Sidon. Those are non-Jewish people. They're coming to him, though. That's the point. Why? Verse 18. So they came to hear him and to be healed of all their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So a couple things that that Jesus is doing here. One is that he's proclaiming this message of the kingdom of God. He's teaching and he's preaching. And that's something you see throughout the gospels. But he's proclaiming this good news of the kingdom. But he's not just preaching. He's also demonstrating the, the, the presence, or we could say even enacting the presence of this kingdom and it's coming through, through these healings, it's coming through these restoration, the restoration of people, and, it, and it's coming through these deliverances of people as well. And, and, and this actually is the, the, the pattern of Jesus' ministry, ministry throughout the Gospels. It's a ministry of word, and it's a ministry of deed. And both of these things are, are essential. Okay, so how does that connect then with these 12? If that's what Jesus' ministry is, what does that say for them? Well, it comes in this word, apostle. So apostles uh, are, are uh, unique in that they, they served a particular purpose for a particular amount of time. 
they, they, they were uh, the, in a unique authoritative role in that they were called by Jesus to carry on Jesus' ministry in word and deed. And in a very official way, they represented him. There's actually like legal language to this as well, such that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the apostles were those who wrote the scriptures as they were carried along uh, by the Spirit. So, okay, here's the question then. We understand that's what the apostles are called to, and that's a unique role that ceased 2,000 years ago. How does that connect then to us? Obviously, we're not casting out demons like this. We're not healing this way. We're certainly not writing scripture, right? So how does this map on to, to, to who we are now as disciples or as apprentices? Well, in this way, we share this calling in that our ministry is also a ministry of word and deed. That we're to, to, to proclaim and share and teach this good news of the kingdom. But we're also called to demonstrate it. We're called to, to do ministry of deed, which is a mercy ministry. All the ways in which we would love in very tangible ways those people around us. And, and so uh, you might even notice on the back of our uh, uh, bulletin, if you want to flip back there, you'll see that our second to last core commitment uses this very language, that we're extending, we're following Jesus by extending the welcome of the gospel in word and deed. So why is that uh, so important for us to see uh, even right now? Uh, I think it's particularly important um, because we are going into a stage of life in our church where we're going to have a lot of opportunities for a lot of different ministries. And one of the things that churches are so susceptible to is losing sight of what's fundamental, Losing sight of our fundamental mission and calling. And so part of what I want us to see from this passage is that the, the ministry that God calls us to is a ministry that is centered upon, that is rooted in, that is focused on Jesus and the good news of his kingdom, period. And if at any point we were to begin to, to, to veer from that or to, to waver on that or to begin focusing in other places... And Jesus would then cease to be the heart of who we are and what we do as a church, then that's the time where we need to, to close up shop and go home. Jesus is the one that we want to be about from start to finish. And here's part of why this is uh, so important for us to see Jesus gives us literally the best possible news that you could share with your friends, with your neighbors, and with our city. That He is one who comes to redeem and to restore what is broken, to offer forgiveness for the, the crippling guilt that we have before God, to cover the, the shame that we experience that we've brought on ourselves through our own sin, and to, to make whole all the ways in which we have been broken by the fall. That's the message that we have the opportunity to share with our friends and neighbors, to turn from those, those lifeless ways to turn to the one who can give true life. That's the message that we have to share. That's the message that we have to enact. So that's the character of our ministry. I want to finish with this. Fourthly and finally, the context for ministry. The context for ministry. So um, here's what I mean by this. Uh, I mean that, that the kingdom ministry is done in the context of community. It's done in the context of church. This is probably pretty obvious in this passage, um, but I think it's, it's one of those things that's so obvious that we might miss it. Jesus doesn't call individuals here. He calls a people. He calls his church. And here's why that's, so, I think, so helpful to remember. Or it's so helpful here to remember then that, that new Israel theme that I mentioned earlier. 
So Israel's call, if you go all the way back to to, uh, God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12, was to be a light to the nations. And so part of what God's calling him to be or to, to, to do is that they've been blessed in order to be a blessing. They, through their worship of the Lord and through their life together, are to put on display who God really is in such a way that that these surrounding nations would look at Israel and and see the way that they live, see this God that they're worshiping, and ultimately become worshipers themselves. And so here's the point about that. Jesus then is calling his apostles, the new 12, to take up that same mission through him. So they, as the new Israel, are to take up this call of their king and to bear witness to him together as a community, as a people, that's now our call as well. So, uh, so how are we to do that? What does that mean for us as a church? Let's suggest two things here as we wrap up. One is this. It means that we don't do this alone. Um, I think one of the most intimidating things uh, is thinking about doing ministry all by yourself. <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason that even when we start talking about ministry, you get that sort of um, like pit in your stomach a little bit. You know, like what is this going to mean that I need to do? And uh, so here's the thing. That is not how Jesus' church works. He, by his spirit, has given all kinds of different gifts to all kinds of different people. So uh, take this for an example. Um, Some of you are incredibly gifted in hospitality, where there is something in the way in which God has gifted you that, 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 uh, that enables people to feel at ease when they're around you, that enables to you to, to welcome people in and immediately give them a sense of your care and your love for them. And so that initial welcome is huge. So that's, that's a gift that some of you have. Others of you, though, have a, a great gift of being able to really answer the hard questions about Scripture and about theology generally. And so you love to dig in on those big, deep questions. The thing is, those are typically not the questions that you're talking about with somebody the first time that you meet them, Right? But they are those essential questions that that almost every person has to wrestle with at some point in the process of coming to know Jesus. And so so one person might extend that initial welcome, and it might be that another person is playing this other role down the line of getting to dig in with that person on these particular questions. And and what I want you to see is that, that there are various diverse gifts that are being employed by God's people, and every one of them are essential. Every one of them are essential. Uh, Here's a quote from uh, two pastors uh, from the gospel-centered community. They say this, Community is the primary context for mission, our outward focus as believers. God wants to use our communities, messy and broken as they are, to draw others into his story and introduce them to Jesus, the Redeemer. It's not just about us becoming more like Jesus. It's about people who don't know Jesus coming to know him as Savior and Lord. So we don't do this alone. That's the first thing to see. Here's the other thing this means for us. It means that we don't do this with people who are just like us. So uh, I already mentioned this, but um, these, uh, these 12 are not the kind of people that would naturally be hanging out together. So I, I mentioned Simon the Zealot, who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And then you got Matthew, the tax collector, who works for the Roman government. Pretty awkward, right? And now both of these guys... Are, are, are come together, have come together into this one new countercultural and cross-cultural community of the king. And here's the amazing thing about this. It, it, those relationships are themselves a way that we actually put on display the truth of the gospel. 
And so you see this over and over again in the New Testament where people should be able to look to the church and say, how is that possible? How is it possible that these Jews and these Gentiles are now, having put their faith in Jesus, in this one new family together? How is it that this, the, the, these people of various races, very different cultures, are now a part of this one same church together? How is it that, that these people who vote very differently from one another, who have very different political perspectives, are in this same community of people together now? How is that possible? It's possible, ultimately, because the gospel is true and Jesus really is Lord. And man, in a world and in a culture that is so deeply divided right now, we're going into, we're in an election year as well. Just a quick reminder. We have such an incredible opportunity to put on display the kind of reconciling power that Jesus and his gospel alone can bring. That's part of what we have the opportunity to do as a church. Here's the thing about that, though. That, that reconciliation comes at a massive cost. It came at a huge cost, and you get a hint of that even in this list. In the last sentence, you get this description of Judas, who's described as the one who became a traitor. And so even here, there's this sort of shadow that, that, that's cast over this list of these disciples because it's something here that is a preview of what Jesus would endure in order to reconcile all these people to himself and to one another. And so Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, it is by his cross that our king has reconciled us to God and it's by his cross that he's reconciled us to one another. And it is that king that both offers himself to you and actually calls you and me to be a part of his work in this world. How are you gonna respond to that call? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have called us into that has been accomplished once for all by your son on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you for the ways that you intend to use us as your people to bear witness to our king. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that by your spirit in us, that you would continue to mold us and shape us in such a way that we would show the world this reconciling power of the gospel that we would bear witness to our king and to his kingdom. And for we pray it all in his name and for his glory. Amen.